Welcome to the Rusty George Podcast, where each month we'll be tackling issues from the Bible to culture, community, and of course, sports. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Really glad that you are here, and I am honored to have with us as our guest, John Ortberg. And John is the pastor of an amazing growing church up in Menlo Park uh, in the Bay Area and uh, a lifelong Cubs fan. So speak to the glory of God regarding that. You know, I grew up, I was 12 years old when the Cubs had uh, their most tragic season where they were ahead the whole year and then ended up falling apart. So uh, it was, I think 1908 was the last time they won the World Series. Right. So this year to see God smile, um, to, to think about the joy that it brought to Jesus's heart. Right. To have a group of people who had been losers become winners uh, it's kind of, I'm, I'm ready for him to come back anytime now. Yeah. <laughs> Your life is complete. Mm-hmm. Yep. John's an amazing author. He's written a lot of books, uh, all of which I've read and found them uh, equally captivating. But the one that really got my attention was Soul Keeping. And I can't even say that's your most recent because I think, you know, there have been some others since then. But that's just the one that I keep rereading every year. I love your dialogue about your relationship with Dallas Willard. I love the insights from him, and I love your being the resident dumb guy in the conversation mm-hmm. to keep yeah. saying, what? Because that's what we're all thinking when we read Dallas, mm-hmm. but for you to make sense of it. And to talk about something that we often don't overlook, the, or that we do overlook, called the soul. Now, we just finished up a staff meeting where you were talking about this a little bit, and you drew this great diagram here. And I'd like to set it up with, you use the analogy of, and you quoted somebody as saying, most of us have a Looney Tunes version of a soul, mm-hmm. but it's so much different than that. So explain that and then explain this. Yeah, it's actually a, a guy who's, he's both a, a medical doctor and a clergyman, and he was part of creating the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that uh, they were using psychiatry to diagnose folks. Mm. So he's got a lot of expertise in the mental health field, but he's really been drawn to the word soul and asking why do we not use that word much anymore and what do we lose if we lose soul language? Mm. And often in our day, people will just have the general idea that um, somehow science has proven there is no such thing as the soul. Mm. Um, And uh, so he found out that most people in churches are of course familiar with the word and like a lot of words, we all think we know what it means, but when somebody asks us to actually define it, we get real fuzzy real quick. And most people just have this odd picture in their minds of like when Daffy Duck would get shot in those old cartoons and his body is laying dead on the ground and then this thin, wispy, vapory version of Daffy Duck rises up into the air mm-hmm. with either a halo or horns, depending on how Daffy was that particular day. And a lot of people will think that soul is the wispy, immaterial part of you that's vaporous and that lives on after you die. That's the Looney Tunes theory of the soul. Right. It's not a good summary of what the biblical writers would have been thinking about. Right. Okay, so with that in mind, which by the way, just the fact that Daffy Duck got shot <laughs> in a cartoon. It's painful. Can you imagine Dora yeah. the Explorer getting yeah. shot? I mean, yeah. that, Doesn't happen anymore. Fly, right? Cartoons used to be much more brutal than they actually were. <laughs> we're protecting kids a lot now. We really are. They need to know, Daffy Duck's gonna die. That's You're gonna right. die, I'm gonna die. That's right. Death's a part of life. His beak will spin around his head a few That's times. Right. All right. Well. Tell us about this, then, as a definition of what the soul really is. Understanding anything is a part of caring for it. So if you want to care for your car, you want to care for your home, you want to care for your body, to know what are the parts and how do they function together, that's really, Dallas would talk about, that's really what 
understanding is about. When you understand something, you understand the parts that make it up and what their functions are, how they fit together, whether it's an economy or a country or anything. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been interested in persons and how do people change, what's the human condition, and actually spent a long time studying psychology. But Dallas made sense of that for me in a way that I had just not seen before. Mm -hmm. And he would say that these are all an understanding of personhood that goes way back to the ancient world and that still is the most helpful way of thinking about what are the parts that make up a person? How do people work? Right. And so um, at the core of you, at the core of anybody, is your will. Your will is your ability to say yes or no. It's the, the ability to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And um, it's part of what makes you, you, and nobody else. It's what enables you to create. That's why our wills are so precious to us. That's why if somebody tries to steamroll over me, I feel dehumanized. Mm -hmm. Part of why Jesus would talk a lot about the perils of leadership is it's so hard to lead somebody and not violate their will. And then Dallas would say, in the ancient world, two other words that refer basically to that same function are heart and spirit. Mm -hmm. When the word heart is used, um, it's emphasizing the fact that this is right at the core of who you are. It's at my heart. Spirit emphasizes the fact that it's power or energy. It's mm -hmm. personal power. But anytime you see any of these words, it's getting at the fact that people have the ability to say yes or no. It's why we're different than chairs and tables, and right. it's precious to God. Then I have a mind, and that mind in the ancient world refers to both the thoughts that I have, those are going on all the time, mm -hmm. and my feelings, um, happy or sad, I'm pulled towards something, or I don't like something. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about what kind of person somebody is, Mostly, we're referring to this. So an angry person or an unhappy person or a grateful person, that's how their mind tends to work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then the next layer out is the body. You and I have bodies. Our bodies are a real important part of who we are. Um, our bodies are made up mostly of habits and appetites. Most of our behavior, we outsource to habits. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of what we do doesn't require our will, doesn't even require conscious thoughts. And that's a really, really good thing. Um, so that if you had to, you know, if you remember when you first started to ride a bike, or you first started to dress yourself, um, how do you do that? Well, we just outsource that to the body. The body is so amazing. And for our habits to be good um, is great. And Jesus understood this profoundly. Um, I think sometimes about, I still wear ties every once in a while. Being in Southern California, and your age, you probably never wear a tie. I periodically do. If you were to ask me how to tie a tie, I couldn't tell you. Right. What I would have to do is begin to do it. Because literally, I have outsourced to my hand, into my right, my right hand knows to do what it should do. My left hand knows to do what it should do. I could not articulate it, but I could do it. Hmm. Now, Jesus said one time, when it comes to giving, let not your left hand know what your right hand, in other words, let generosity be so deeply embedded into your habits that you are no longer thinking in your mind what a noble and generous person I am. Mm -hmm. When I'm tying a tie, I don't think what an amazingly skilled person I am. Look at me, Nancy, come look, I've tied my tie again. My mind is free to think more interesting thoughts. And see, part of what redemption looks like is the habits of our mind have been so infiltrated by God and His presence that things like generosity or courage or truthfulness are just 
in our bodies mm -hmm. and we no longer have to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing and like with giving he says don't go don't go show other people don't blow trumpets because mm -hmm. I'm no longer thinking what an amazing thing this is and I no longer depend on other people's approval to have a sense of well-being mm -hmm. it's just embedded into my habits the outsourcing of habit to the body is a fabulous dimension of human existence all of that would be great but sin has gotten into our habits mm -hmm. and that's part of where sin is so powerful I used to think when I was growing up of sin as just you steal or you lie and if you just worked hard with your will you could stop sinning mm -hmm. but sin goes way deeper than that it has gotten into us at the habit level where I'm not aware of it mm -hmm. so when I'm with you part of what's running in my mind is I wonder how this interview is going mm. is it going good I think it's going good? It? Yeah. And if I think, oh, you're not listening, you're, then, <laughs> then I feel deflated and like my worth is diminished. And if I think it's going well, then my sense of worth is puffed up. And then I start working to try to convince you or to convince you who are watching right now, this is going good. You really. So that's all gotten into the level of habit. And I can no longer defeat sin by just an act of the will. And so that gets into the social dimension of my life. Part of my identity is I'm somebody's son, I'm somebody's husband, I'm somebody's brother. And this is so critical. Uh, we were talking about this with staff that um, a guy named Robert Putnam writes, if you make no other changes in your life this year, but you get into a small group, you cut your odds of dying in half. So it's just this tremendously powerful need that we have to be in relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's why... Um, life groups are such a core part of this church. Mm -hmm. So I have a will, I have a mind, I have a body, I have relationships, and then there's the soul. And I learned this from Dallas, but you can read it in folks who have written about the soul for many, many centuries. In the ancient world, they would look at how people have these different functions, and yet we're all one person, one being. Mm -hmm. So they called the capacity to integrate different functions into one person, into one being, soul. Mm. It's not the wispy, immaterial part of you that floats on after you die. It had a very definite meaning. It really meant something. Mm. And it was the ability to integrate. And that's why um, a concept like integration or wholeness, that soul talk. Mm -hmm. That's why when people will say things like, I feel like I'm falling apart, or I just can't hold it together. Mm. or We have this sense of being split or the divided will it's the soul that feels that the soul is healthy when with the will i choose what is good mm -hmm. and then i actually do what it is that i choose we have all kinds of language around this we will say the road to hell is paved with good intentions good intentions so part of what happens when when sin damages us with our body and our mind is i intend to do what is good mm -hmm. But now, under sin, intending to do what is good is not enough. Mm -hmm. And I want to eat well, I want to talk well, I want to be a grateful person, but sinful habits consume my body and my mind so much that I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And so for the soul to be healthy, my will and my mind with its thoughts and feelings and my body with all those habits and appetites have to be redeemed, reformed, transformed. And that's what it means to have your soul saved. 
is for God to reintegrate and redeem all of these. I'm so glad you asked that. I grew up in a church that I'm real grateful for, but often we would use language that the Bible uses it, but over time it just gets encrusted with meanings that are not what the biblical authors actually meant. And so when we would talk about saving somebody's soul, what we would mean by that is make sure they have satisfied the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when they die. And then we sometimes have debates about what are the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jesus never announces the gospel as, now I will tell you the minimum entrance requirements for getting to heaven when you die. Right. What he does say is, now the kingdom of God, and this gets back to will again, um, a kingdom is the range of someone's will, mm -hmm. where what somebody says goes. So you have a kingdom. Mm -hmm. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. And now for those of us who are pastors, part of what that gets into is, is the church I serve my kingdom? And are the people on staff part of my kingdom? And this gets, it's very difficult to exercise the reign of my kingdom and to coordinate it into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God has a real definite meaning. It's not something way out in outer space past Kansas City. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. It is wherever things are the way that God wants them to be. And that's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, part of what we pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' gospel is not... Now I'll tell you the minimum requirements needed so that you can leave here and go there. He says, I want you to pray, your kingdom come down here. Make Not let me go up there, make up there come down here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right here in Southern California, right here off the five freeway. But of course, the place where that is to start is in my kingdom, in my body. Okay, so I have a question here for you. Mm -hmm. You said in the book, and I think you're quoting Dallas, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. That sounds like soul integration. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah I was actually on sabbatical, and I, I found, I feel like I'm a better person on sabbatical than I am when I'm working. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, that didn't seem like that would be God's plan, especially since I'm a pastor. That doesn't seem right. like such a good thing. And um, so I took one day when I was on sabbatical and just went to visit Dallas and asked him, what do I need to do to lead my church into spiritual health and growth? And his response was precisely that statement. You must arrange your life so that you're experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And my initial response was, no, no, no. I didn't ask about me. I said, what about my church? And he said, no, you'll always reproduce who you are with your church. So it's not mostly about some program. And then he said, what that means is, when you think about those words, what does it mean to be content? What does it mean to be joyful? And what does it mean to have confidence? Mm -hmm. And my constant temptation is to think, no, when I have answered every question and solved every problem and the church is growing the way that I want it to and everybody thinks that I'm doing well, then I will experience deep contentment and joy and confidence. And Dallas said, no, you cannot wait for that. It's not somebody else's job. It's not something the elders will do. It's not something your boss will do. It's not something you, you must arrange your life. 
And so then I have to ask the question, what are those activities that I need to do, like to go and be alone with God, and to do things that fill me up with joy, um, to be with people who fill my soul, um, sometimes to do nothing. And then how do I not do? One of my problems, one of the things that even more recently I've become aware of is often when it's time where I know I should be resting, mm -hmm. if Nancy's gone and there's no kids around, I'll think I can get a little more work done. Mm -hmm. And what will happen is I'll immediately feel there's a little burden on my soul mm -hmm. because I'm not trusting God. It's the manna thing of saying, if I restrict my work to when I'm supposed to work and then I just trust God, you will give me what I need in this moment. Um, and then, whatever the outcome is, I will live in joy because I'm doing life together with you. Now, when I stop doing that, I take too much onto myself. I work too long. What I'm really saying is, God, if I only worked with you in those moments when I ought to be working, I'm afraid I would miss out on some of the good stuff that comes with more achievement and impressing more people. And I don't want to miss the good stuff. So I will not trust you to give me what I need when I'm just doing life the way that I know that I should. And I will take it on myself. I will take too much on myself. I will try to do it in the flesh. And then little resentments and self-pity comes in. And then I've lost the whole deal. So it really is learning to arrange my life. Mm -hmm. Part of what that means is surrender. And I have to be willing to lose all of the applause and achievement or whatever else it is that I think I would gain if I tried to work in the flesh. Wow. Do you have any confessions I, you want to make? I'm glad I don't struggle with any of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. I'm going to let you off the hook there. But thank you so much for everything. And good luck to you, Cubs. As long as they don't play the Royals. Good to know. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks so much for listening today. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and write a review and share this with your friends on social media just by word of mouth. It's been great to have you here. We'll see you next month.